Hey, this is John. Heads up that today's episode has just a little bit of swearing in it. Hello and welcome. My name is John August. My name is Greg Mason. And this is episode 625 of Script Notes, a podcast about screenwriting and things that are interesting to screenwriters. Craig, it's finally here. It's award season. Uh, yeah, you're so excited. What does award season mean for you, Craig? It means losing a succession a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, probably going to happen. Uh, it's it's going to be quite the blitzkrieg mm-hmm. and well-deserved. You know, it would be tougher probably if I didn't love succession mm-hmm. and I also didn't know Jesse Armstrong and know him to be a fantastic person and an amazing writer and leader of, of his whole staff. So it's their final season. I think we're all getting swept under the tide. I'll cry onto the lapels of Mm. Mike White. (laughs) (laughs) Or perhaps he'll cry on mine. Or Mm. maybe a shocker. Yeah. But I doubt it. It's going to be, we're going to be at the Golden Globes. So because of the strikes, everything got squished into. So we're going to be at the Golden Globes. And then a week later, AFI, which is nice because it's not a competition. Then Critics' Choice and then the Emmys. And it will be one crushing smear <laughs> of award season. Do you know, I've been trying to think, like, practice my face when <laughs> when, they, when they announce that I lose multiple times. Like, what do I do with my face? Mm. Because I'm worried that... Oh, yeah. Like, you somehow, want the bad reaction, yeah. Yeah, like, my, my sadness will leak through, although I'm not sad, but I also don't want to be a goof about it. Mm-hmm. So you have to practice a very neutral, like, yeah, that's... That makes sense. Well done, Jesse. Mm-hmm. That's going to be my face. Well done, Jesse. Yeah, absolutely. So for folks at home who can't, of course, see this because this is a, a, an audio medium, it, there's a little nod there. It's a, it's a good acknowledgement. Yeah, yeah that, like, that that's makes about sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's about right. Now, for 99% of, of people listening to this podcast, yeah. they don't have to worry about their faces during award season. No. They just they get to enjoy the movies <laughs> and the TV yes. shows and read the scripts or take a look at the scripts that were behind all these amazing achievements. Via your app, I believe. Yeah, so all these things are available in Weekend Read, but I'd also, we'll put links in the show notes to the original PDFs, because I think it's sometimes good for us on this podcast to look at the PDFs to look at sort of what they were like on the page, like literally the layout right. on the page, because we talk about this a lot in the three-page challenge. So, And everybody's different. It's always interesting yeah. to see how people do things. Yeah, and so... Uh, we'll be taking a look at a lot of the four-year consideration scripts to see what lessons and trends we can learn from the movies that got made this past year. All right. We'll also answer some listener questions about writing routines, share credits, and more things like that. And in our bonus segment for premium members, Craig, how do we feel about lab-grown meat? And would we eat human flesh if it were created in a lab? <laughs> Craig is laughing, but we'll get the real answers only in the bonus segment for I'm premium members. And suddenly hungry. Oh, strange that. Mm. Mm. Humans. Um, we are recording this before the calendar has flipped to January, but some of the last news coming out of December was the possibility that Paramount is up for sale or yes. Sherry Redstone may consider selling Paramount. Yes. And uh, Warner's has apparently had a conversation about it. I don't feel good about Warnamount, but I... <laughs> Very good portmanteau. Yeah. So I didn't, didn't create that, but I, I hear it being said. Parabros. <laughs> Parabros, yeah. Parabros. Parabros. I don't want Warner's to buy Paramount. I don't want another Disney Fox situation, and I don't know how... I'm not sure it's Warner okay. Brothers shareholders want this either. I uh, mean... The stock it, prices were down after it's it, a yeah. bit. It's a bit confusing because so much of what's been going on post any of these mergers... Mm-hmm is that the company that acquires the other company then has to manage all the debt Mm -hmm. because these are all leveraged. I mean, Apple, I suppose, could do it. Everybody else needs to borrow money to buy these companies with the understanding that it'll pay off in the end. But in the short term, you do get saddled with a lot of debt. 
And so Warner Brothers, uh, Discovery bought Warner Brothers Mm -hmm. and then was saddled with a lot of debt. It seems counterintuitive that they would want to buy someone else. The upsides, I suppose, of buying Paramount is you also get CBS. Yeah. And so that's one of the unique situations is that basically you're not allowed to own two broadcast networks, but Warner doesn't own a broadcast network. Precisely. So they're one of the few existing studios that could legally conceivably buy right. uh, Paramount slash CBS. They could they could buy it. You do get, there are a lot of great Paramount, fr- I mean, Star Trek alone has mm, been kicking off a trillion dollars over the last decades. Look, I don't understand because I don't, I, I don't buy companies yeah. or sell them, but Paramount seemingly has been on the block forever. The thing that I wonder about, and it was the same thing I wondered about with Disney and Fox is the lot itself. Yeah. What happens? I mean, so Fox is a smallish lot. Mm-hmm. But it's incredibly prime real estate. Prime real estate, but it's smallish. Yeah. So you could argue, eh, let's keep it. Yeah. And let's use the sound stages and all the people that have offices there. Paramount is massive. Mm-hmm. And we know Warner's is massive. So is Paramount. You were saying what was small, a small lot? Uh, Fox. Oh, I think Fox is a huge lot. Really? I yeah. think of it as a small lot. I think of it as a, as a much bigger lot than Paramount, actually. Really? I do. Well, can you quickly scan this up and let's see? Well, let's take a look. We're going to look at Google Maps In here. In my brain, Paramount just goes on and on and on. Oh, but, but I mean, having sort of picketed at Paramount a, a ton, like you really can kind of walk around. You can't, can't walk around the north perimeter of it because it backs up against the cemetery. All right. So I'm looking up sizes here. Mm-hmm. Paramount Studio, their lot is 65 acres. 65 acres. 65 acres. Now, let's talk about Fox lot by size. The Fox lot is 50 plus acres. So Paramount is bigger. It's bigger. Okay. It's bigger. Now, 65 acres, by the way, or 50 acres in the middle of either Hollywood like Paramount Mm -hmm. or Culver City like, uh, or I guess West LA, um, like Fox. That's, yeah, that's worth a gazillion dollars. So there is another argument, which is (laughs) you're buying real estate. Yeah. Incredibly valuable real estate. That's terrifying Mm -hmm. because it's it's our history. Yeah. I mean, it would be so sad to see one of the great studio lots torn down and parceled out into condos. But, you know, Uh. Getting back to beyond the real estate, like I was concerned about Disney buying Fox because I felt like there's just one less place to sell a movie, well, one less place to sell a TV series, yes. and that it, it should never have been able to go through. And I didn't think, see Fox really struggling that much. I, they, was, they still had franchises. They were still able to do stuff. And I also see Paramount doing stuff. Yeah. I just, I'm frustrated that it feels like we're setting these impossible standards for like what a studio is supposed to be able to kick off and generate. And ignoring the fact that there's cycles and ups and downs, and there's hits and misses, and yes. Paramount could be on the, the uptick. It's so. possible, although as a movie studio, mm-hmm. it has felt a bit moribund over the last 10 years even. When you and I started, Paramount was a full buyer like anyone else. Yeah. And over the last 10 years, it just felt like their output dwindled down to Transformers, occasional Star Trek, not a ton else, mm-hmm. um, Indiana Jones, but now, Indiana Jones, it's Disney, now it's yeah. Disney. Yeah. So, yeah, it did feel like it was shrinking. Mm. I agree with you that anytime there's one fewer buyer, that's yeah. bad news. On the other hand, it is counterbalanced by the fact that there are all these other buyers that didn't exist before. Yeah. So Apple, Amazon, Netflix. A24. A24. Yeah. Yeah. 
the other thing I would say is CBS as a brand is really good. It's still an incredibly powerful broadcast network. Of yeah. the shows that actually watch their broadcast shows, Survivor, Amazing Race, Big Brother, like those are all CBS shows. I mean, they tend to skew older, but like... Also sports. Sports, got huge sports. Yeah, I mean, the, the sports alone is a pretty big deal. So if your argument is, hey, if you're a big studio, you should have a television network. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. But I don't understand. No. The one thing that people have suggested is maybe the government would thwart it. Hmm. It doesn't seem like they ever thwart it. This FTC, I don't think, would have allowed Disney and Fox to go. I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, they'll probably push on it and yeah. challenge it and delay it. But it seems like they never stop anything. They actually just stopped Adobe from buying Figma, um, which was like... Oh, so, I don't know what that is. Adobe was trying to buy... What's um, Figma? They are one of the big design software uh, um, places. Okay, well then, okay. They, yeah. Something there. The question for the FTC is always whether you know consolidation is bad because it hurts prices or does it hurt competition overall within the industry? And I think that consolidation can hurt worker power. It can, it can it's hurt... It's a little tricky, right? Because hurting worker power is probably not enough although that's certainly, you know, our interest, there are still a lot of competitors in Hollywood, whereas Adobe buying Figma maybe reduced the pool of, mm. you know, if it increases their market share to 80%, now you've got a problem. But nobody has 80% market share. I mean, the only company in Hollywood that would even be whiffing at some kind of monopolistic market share would be Netflix. Yeah, agreed. If Netflix were to try to buy something, I think there would be... Netflix would not be able to buy something. I, I can't imagine that would go through. All right. Some follow-up. So a couple of sessions ago, I, we talked about that I was going to start learning the IPA, the International Phonetic Alphabet. Yeah. And it's actually been really interesting. So I'm, I'm working with a tutor, but also going through some books and sort of learning some stuff. And there's just things you never think about. And so like the huh sound, we have huh, but we also have hh. And so like the difference between who and hue yeah. is, is really strange. And so I'm actually really enjoying learning all that stuff. In particular, there's a chart you can see which shows like all the sounds that are in all the languages, basically sort of where they fit into the mouth. And there are sounds that humans can make that for whatever reason don't show up in any languages, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, maybe they just weren't considered valuable for some reason or another. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, some languages have clicks mm -hmm. and things like that, but no one really has, you know, yeah. <laughs> nobody does that, yeah. which is probably for the best. There are certain sounds in other languages that we can copy, mm -hmm. even though we don't use them yeah. without too much difficulty like like that yeah. one but then there are sounds like there are certain sounds like for instance in icelandic where you're like i kind of don't know how to do that yeah that's a hard sound to make yeah if you haven't been raised natively and it can be hard sounds to make and also hard sounds to hear i mean classically if we if you're not raised in a tonal language it's very hard to hear the tones and stuff if you're trying to learn mandarin right as an adult you can hear them but you can't hear the shades in between them mm -hmm. right like so it's hard to discriminate it's that thing where someone's like, no, 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 I said this and you said this. And you're like, you just said the same thing twice. No, I didn't. And I can understand. There's also these funny things that happen, particularly with British English mm -hmm. compared to American English, where a lot of British people will drop the H's sort of famously, you know, so how are you doing? But then they will add H's mm -hmm. where or aspirations where we don't like instead of HBO, a lot of people in Britain say HBO. Yeah. HBO is kind of incredible. Mm -hmm. Or classically also adding the aspirated H before W. So where are you? Where? 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 Yeah. Where are you going? Yeah. Uh, what? 
what? And so uh, we're, we're sort of making up accents and there's, you know, clearly patterns of things that go together. Yes. The thing I'm also was a little bit brain melting. I think I've mostly gotten the way through it is the two TH sounds in English. V and f. Yeah. Um, right. which you think you understand fully and then you realize like almost the same word can have a different thing. So as you were writing stuff out in phonetic things, it's a, which are you using the theta or using the other one right. to, to show it. Right. With or this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But withdrawn doesn't have the, doesn't have the voiced. Withdrawn, right. Yeah, you wouldn't say with, you could right. say, you could say withdrawn. You'd be wrong. Yeah. Right. Or the is the simplest one. It's not the. Yeah. Right. If someone said the, yeah. <laughs> it would actually be kind of incredible. Yeah. But imagine you're a, a speaker who doesn't right. speak a language with those sounds. Like, how do you tell those apart? And that, I guess, is, that's the con of learning English. On the plus side, the easiest conjugations ever. Love it. It's so good. <laughs> and if you sort of learn the sounds of English, you can get through a lot of other languages pretty easily. Also, if you're not a native English speaker mm-hmm. and you're and you say, I would like the bagel, no one's gonna be like, what what? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> They'll say, got it. Here's yeah. the bagel. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's nice. Not that far off. I'm also just always impressed by um, deaf people who learn to speak you know, spoken English and just how challenging that must be to figure out yeah. what all those sounds are without being able to have the feedback mechanism. And it is fascinating to see where the difficulties mm-hmm. are because there are certain things that we apparently need oral AURAL feedback for to get. So typically when deaf people are first learning to speak out loud, it's very nasal mm-hmm. and certain sounds are just sort of clipped or not there because there's not a feedback loop. Yeah. Which is like nasality is a really interesting mm-hmm. thing that you just, I don't know, I guess hearing you autocorrect. Yeah. yeah. Strange. Strange, strange stuff. Yeah. So that was one of my goals for you know, 2024 was learning that. But Mike and I sort of made a joint list of like goals for things like 24 things we're going to do in 24. You guys are so organized. We're so organized. Yeah. And so I would just encourage people to think about that. It's, it's good to set for a couple goal stuff and mm. things like we're going to do bar trivia at least four times in 2024. I love bar trivia. It's the best. Uh, we're going to see at least two shows at the Hollywood Bowl. So make a list of like not sort of yeah. homework stuff, but things like, oh yeah, let's actually make it a plan to do those things. That sounds great. Did you ever read the story of that couple that was like, for this year, we're going to have sex every day? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah, I can't do that. No. <laughs> no, this seems like too much. Yeah. Because sometimes I think couples are like, we should do it. We should do the sex every day. I feel like I would probably make it yeah. eight days and be like. Um, so we did it for a month. You did it for a month. For a month. And uh, it was Wait, a lot. Are, like, yeah. And so like around day 22, was it like, uh, time to make the donuts? I think it was actually a useful thing for us to do. Right. Just, just to sort of like a, a reminder, yes. a prioritization of, of that. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a pretty interesting yeah. notion. Yeah. It's sort of like, you know, those folks who do Whole30 where they don't eat any like refined sugars or any of that stuff right. for 30 days. Like you do actually like come to appreciate other things. you can kind of do anything for them. You know what I've stopped doing? What's this? I've stopped biting my nails. Good. That's terrific. Yeah. So I have a friend who has a habit that she's trying to break. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a similar sort of habit, you know, like just to kind of be uh, an ally. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'll do it with you. Yeah. I've been biting my nails my whole life. Yeah. Every now and then what I find myself is like my nails resting on my tooth and uh-huh. then I'm like, nope. And I take it out. But I'm having to learn how to use nail clippers because mm-hmm. I, I can't, I, didn't, I thought maybe we'd just get it all in one shot, but it doesn't, you have to kind of like go around and. Yeah. Like the rest of us. Yeah. So yeah. I'm like a little child learning to walk with yeah. my nail clipper. Yeah. You, you've stopped the auto cannibalism of, of biting your fingernails. And we will discuss that in the, in the bonus, bonus segment. All right. Let's take a look at some of these scripts that are now available for your consideration. So right. this is the thing that I remember when Big Fish was out for award stuff. 
it was just at the early days where they were starting to really send out the scripts and have people read the scripts. And so they would mail like, printed copies of the script or like, yes. the bound things. I had a PDF on my website for stuff, but like PDFs weren't as big of a thing to be shipping around now. Right. Luckily now in 2023, 2024, basically any script that's award eligible is going to have the script out there, which is great resource for, for people. Yeah. These are all theoretically the final shooting scripts, but let's talk about that for a second because they sometimes are and they often aren't. If you were on set shooting the last day of that production versus the script that we're reading, it's probably not the same thing. It's probably not, it doesn't have those color change pages or the partial pages. Sure. Stuff will have changed. Sure. And probably more will change than in the editorial process. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we have to do when we're putting our stuff together is say, okay, do we leave this scene that we deleted? Do we mm-hmm. leave it in? Do we leave this longer version of the scene in? Generally, I do. The stuff that I will amend to conform it to the final edit usually has to do with things that involve meaning. Mm -hmm. Or if there were things that I was just like, yeah, actually, it wasn't that good. I'm glad Mm -hmm. I took it out and I don't need, it doesn't need to be in the script. Um, Or if you reshot something, so it just, you know, it really does not resemble the final version of that. Like in Go, there was was a reshoots and it's sort of the whole sequences that are are no longer. Exactly. So you can, for a movie, it's much easier because there's just less of it. So Mm -hmm. you can spend the time conforming it. You can make it almost a transcript version of the final cut for television shows is a little more annoying and you just sort of have to my general thing is go with the shooting script do a version where you unlock the pages Mm -hmm. maybe i take off the scene numbers they're not particularly useful for people remove the asterisks and the production headers and then you know here or there make your choices about whether or not you want to conform it a friend of ours uh worked at a studio and one of his jobs every award season was to go through and like put together that final yeah. script that would actually go out there because sometimes there were little changes or things that were in the final movie that weren't in this. And so he had to sort of conform those things. And that's a tough job. You're literally like going through scene by scene, watching it and then making sure that the script matches it. That's right. If there is a line that happens on the day because the director and let's hope the writer is there. Well, usually not, but let's say it's the writer director. Let's say Ryan Johnson says, oh, I have an idea. Instead of saying yeah. what I wrote, say this instead. And they do. That has to now be written into the script or else it just doesn't have that great line. I mean, here's Johnny in The Shining was not in the script that day for him to do, but you'd want to have that in the script. You would want to have that in the script. The only time it's come up in my sort of arbitration experience, there was one project I worked on where the script had gone through a lot of drafts and other writers had touched it. And I saw a cut of the film and then I got the final shooting script for the arbitration process. And I had to sort of go back to the guild and say like, this is not the movie. This is not the movie I actually saw. And there's a right. ton of scenes that are in this script that are not in the movie at all. And so uh, they went to the studio and the studio agreed. And so they, they created a new script, which is much more a, a, a transcript of what the film was. A reflection was. of what yeah. it was. Yeah. So there's this thing that when you arbitrate for credit, what the arbiters are asked to do is credit the final shooting script. Mm-hmm. So that's what the credit is for. Well, sometimes there isn't one because people just started doing stuff or figuring things out on the day and not writing it down. And Or I do this all the time when I'm editing where I'm like, oh, I'm going to add a line and just put it Mm -hmm. on this person's back and we'll loop it. Well, what about all that? Yeah. So, yeah, you do kind of need a conforming process, especially for credit. Yeah. All right. So the scripts we're looking at, some of them may be closer to what was actually shot on the day. Some of them are sort of combined optimized versions of what the plans were. But I think they're all really useful. And they do reflect the writer's original intentions behind these things. And so I broke these down into sort of a couple categories. I wanted to start with 
scripts that just do a great job of establishing the setting. And so when we do the three-page challenges, we're always looking at sort of like, do I know what kind of movie this is? Do I know what the world is like? Right. Thought we might start with The Holdovers by David Hemmingson. Okay. So if we take a look at this, first three pages here, uh, day one, December 18th, 1970, credit is on the top. And then we're going through a sequence of scenes that are establishing this boys' school on the East Coast. The choir master is, is leading the kids through a little town of Bethlehem. I just thought it did a brilliant job of sort of establishing the world of a 1970s boys' prep school and sort of yes. what the feeling and the time and the season was. Yes. And as you go through, I really appreciate the fact that there is specific music that is called out. The music itself gives you a signal that as you move through these moments, you're not moving through against dead nothing. It's kind of amazing how even in our minds, if I just took that line out, even if I just said the choir master gives each boy his note and they sing, mm -hmm. and I didn't say, oh, little town of Bethlehem, the rest of this would be very just bleh. Mm -hmm. But now I can hear it. And I'm moving around and I'm seeing everything that he wants me to see. And I understand the tone of it, which is that it's set against this choral music. Um, very well done. Yeah, that's it's just great started here. So by the end of our three pages here, we have met our main hero, our main antagonist. So we've met Crandall, who's the main kid we're going to be following. Uh, we've met the teacher, Paul, who's the Paul Giamatti's character. We have a sense of sort of what this world is like. And so there's some surprises I don't want to spoil in the film, but like we get a really good sense of what the world this film is going to be taking place in. Right. And, um, you know, my obsession with wardrobe, hair, makeup to mm -hmm. describe characters. So I'm just going to read the description of Miss Crane. Mm -hmm. Uh, Miss Crane, a bright-eyed, middle-aged secretary holding a plate with a napkin over it. Now, I don't know much other than age and bright eyes. But then she smiles lipstick on her teeth. Yes! <laughs> yes! I can see her now. And and the thing is, we don't have to describe everything. No. We just have to describe the stuff that we think will matter mm -hmm. to the reader to get the essence of who a person is. And there is something about a bright-eyed, middle-aged secretary with lipstick on her teeth where I go... There's about a thousand different people who could play you, mm -hmm. but I see all of you. Yeah. Having seen the film, I don't remember that lipstick being on her teeth, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It, because it gives us a sense of who she is as the reader who yes. doesn't get the visual otherwise. It helps you with casting. Yeah. So with, you know, we're going through quite a bit of casting right now, and when we look at auditions and things, we're not looking for the scene. We're looking for the intangible stuff, the little moments that go, okay, this, they've captured the essence of something. Now, once we cast somebody, it's new. Mm -hmm. And now we change things. So there may be somebody that didn't need the lipstick on the teeth. Yeah. Uh, next up, we're taking a look at All of Us Strangers by Andrew Hay. Uh, this is, again, I thought, a really good job of establishing a place, a time, a setting. So this is modern day. It's London, but we're outside of London. We're sort of looking back at London. This script starts, goes a very long time before our character speaks. And so we're just watching Adam going through his day, trying to write, not really writing. We're establishing the world of the inside of his apartment, this sort of bubble that he's sealed himself in. His flat is comfortable and well looked after. Furniture is all carefully selected and the shelves are lined with books, DVDs, and records. Uh, Adam lies still for a while, more than a while, watching light fade from the room. He sits up, switches on a lamp. His stomach grumbles. We're just getting a sense of place, time, space in these yes. initial pages. And then, hallelujah, some sound. Mm -hmm. So the, the final paragraph of this second scene is, he looks down at his hands resting on his belly and rubs his thumb gently against his finger. The room is quiet enough to hear the sound of skin stroking skin, such a strange sensual sound. Thank you. 
And then the transition is Adam opens the fridge door, the buzz of the appliance loud in the silence. This makes me so happy. Mm-hmm. It just, and anybody out there who's still doing the whole don't direct on the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, direct, direct and use sound as much as you can. Yeah. And so the first dialogue occurs between our, our two main characters, Harry and Adam on page three here, um, which is this initial very important meeting, very awkward dialogue. But Hay does this thing where he does explain sort of what's happening outside of Adam's head, which is always sort of a debate, like how much do you offer up here? So page four here, Harry looks at the bottle. He really does seem fucked. Um, Adam wants him gone. Adam wants him gone. That's a playable thing. Yep. It, it's uh, totally appropriate to have have it there. And I know that there's screenwriter teachers who would say, "Oh, we, that's not a that's not a thing." Oh, you're, it, you're inside of his head. You, well, why shouldn't you be in his head? Mm-hmm. I'm in my character's heads all the time. The important thing is whatever you say, either should inform them mm-hmm. about what they're feeling and thinking, or give them a motivation. But it's perfectly fine to give them something that they don't. It's not a want or an action. It's just context Mm -hmm. because then it maybe helps instead of putting in parentheses, lying, but trying not to be caught, have a little bit of space in there. Like, you know, there's, you know, this is a lie and no one is going to realize it's a lie until blah, blah, blah. Whatever you want to do, as long as it helps them get context and removes questions. Otherwise, there's a lot of questions. And when there's a lot of questions, there's the danger that somebody that doesn't know will answer them. Yes. Incorrectly. Uh, it's also important to look at like this initial conversation. Uh, the scene description is breaking up the conversation a lot, which is giving you a sense of what the pace of this is. So this is not a rat-a-tat-tat we're z- zooming through here. There's a lot of pausing and sort of reconsidering on both sides. Yes, and these pages also look good. Yeah, You know, if you have all this dialogue without any commentary in between, it feels amateurish and it feels like there are missed opportunities. Yeah. It just feels like talking at that point. Yeah. Next up, let's take a look at May, December. Uh, Sammy Birch and Alex Mechanic have the story credit. Sammy Birch has the screenplay credit. I like these pages a lot, and a lot is established and set up very, very quickly. Um, we are meeting our sort of central characters of the two women who are going to be following throughout the story. We don't know context behind who Elizabeth is talking to in these initial scenes, but we get a sense of what Savannah, Georgia is going to feel like. Um, you know, shady eggs drooping with Spanish moss frame historic blocks of Georgian and Victorian townhouses, American flags hanging from exteriors, a high school marching band assembles near a park block. We've established this butterfly imagery that's going to be happening throughout here. Theme. 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 Once we actually get to Grace Atherton's used house, um, there's a party being set up here. Um, so we get some sense of sort of what Gracie's, what Gracie's like. One of the first bits of dialogue I really love is that so her husband, Joe, takes a beer from the fridge and heads out, and Gracie calls out, that's two. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know something about the relationship from that very first little exchange? Once he's out barbecuing, Joe mans the grill. There are so, so many hot dogs. <laughs> Great. Love it. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed sort of setting stuff up in these initial pages. Yeah. What can we say? Good writing's good writing. Mm-hmm. So part of what good writers do is manage to use every ounce of every page without filling it with text. Yeah. So every page looks balanced. It is not blanketed in words. And yet so much information is being imparted in such clever and interesting ways. It's incredibly visual. Mm -hmm. You can kind of smell it. You can kind of hear the chur of the insects outside. Mm -hmm. And you are drawn in because it is providing you with the, like a puzzle that's 
at the exact right level of difficulty. Hmm. Even though you may not know what's going on, you know the movie knows you don't know what's going on and it's okay. Yeah. So you feel like, ah, yes, take me along on this journey. You will reward me. It's just good writing. Yeah. So the experience of watching the film is very much like the experience that we're watching. The script is like, you are a little bit confused and you're also confused like how much do characters really know about each other? Like what do they know versus what do I know? And that's thematically sort of what the story is about. So it's completely appropriate. Yeah. It's funny how often people do get hung up a little bit on, I don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. It's changed over time. If you watch movies that are from even, let's go back to the eighties, you're almost never confused about anything. Everything is really explicit. And if you go back earlier, it's absurdly explicit. Mm -hmm. It's just, I am now going to the store. That is my so-and-so. And we've gotten way more sophisticated with that stuff. And people are keeping up just fine. Yeah, that's absolutely true. In the spirit of keeping up, Saltburn, uh, Emerald Fennell, really jams through a lot in its first couple of pages here. Just stark imagery, you know, cigarette cases, match striking a man's mouth. I wasn't in love with him, um, is the first line spoken, which just becomes a repeating theme. We are zipping through a bunch of sort of flashback scenes, establishing Oliver and Felix, the object of his affection, getting a sense of sort of what this world is like, the college quad, just how stunning Felix is and sort of what a, a, a magnetic focus he is. Um, so we're zooming through a lot. And then we're by the end of page three, we stop going back to the question of like, but was I quote unquote in love with him? And then making it clear that this must be some um, retrospective, something bad has happened that we're narrating the story. Right. So we've got a little prologue and the prologue is letting us know who the problem is, Mm -hmm. the object of desire. And it is also these kinds of voiceover prologues I often think are as Holden Caulfield prologues. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Where the narrator is trying to tell you something and already you kind of suspect he's just lying. He's not telling the truth yeah. or he's spinning it to himself and you at the same time. You don't trust him already, yeah. which is great. And even though people say, well, you know, she was also directing it. Lots of direction on the page. Tons of direction on the page as well there should be. Yeah. So we have a whole separate category for the we are's and we see's, but this is a we are and we see uh, script. Side note, Oliver Quick is the best Charles Dickens name that Charles <laughs> Dickens never wrote. It's it's up there with Oliver Twist. Yeah. Like, I want there to be an Oliver Quick and Oliver Twist movie. Yeah. I would also say Oliver Quick is the name you can get away with if you're setting up in the first couple of pages. But like, if you're halfway through a movie, you've made a character named Oliver Quick. It's like, oh, wait, what, wait, what is this? Hold on a second. Yeah. I'm sorry, did you say Oliver Quick? <laughs> yeah, but... Yeah, it, you, you would stop. Like, so if you met somebody like, oh, my name's Oliver Quick. I'm like, no, it's not. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's bring it down a notch there quick. <laughs> But it's tonal. Mm -hmm. You do get it right up front. Even if no one's saying it out loud, you get it. You, the reader, get it. And uh, it's a delicious name. Yeah. All right. So I set up that we're talking about we hears and we sees. Let's go to Eric Roth, a well-known established writer, and uh, Martin Scorsese. Nope. Never heard of him. I don't know either one of these guys. Who? Killers of the Flower Moon is their film. And so as we look at the shooting script here, Page one, we're establishing um, two-column dialogue, which is a choice you can make when you have things that are going to be subtitled and it's important to have things in both languages. Everything, everywhere, all at once did the same kind of thing with its Chinese dialogue. Here, we're establishing these places and sort of the sort of initial setup for our story here. First line of scene description, we see eyes through cracks and openings in the bark. what? We see slices of faces peering in. No. We hear. No. You can't. You're not. Reddit says you. Oh, wait. (sighs) For the four millionth time, mm-hmm. 
if you hear someone, if we hear someone <laughs> say you can't see, we see, we hear, we anything in a screenplay, print this script out. Don't hit them on the head, but threaten to. <laughs> I, we don't want you to cause violence, but nothing wrong with uh, instigating a little bit of fear. And if anyone's like, well, it's okay, they're established. It's a, it, here's the bigger point. It's not that Eric Roth and Martin Scorsese are established. God knows they are the definition of established. Mm-hmm. It's that no one cares. Yep. No one cares. There is no more attention paid to we see than there is, I don't know, the word exterior. Yeah. It's just not relevant to any of us. Yeah. Stop talking about it. Why, who do we... Who do we talk to? We don't even talk to anybody. I think we, we talk to ourselves, we talk on, to ourselves. Uh, on a weekly basis and eventually people, we will, people will learn about this. I'm also really interested in this numbering system. Yeah. So our numbers are here, uh, P1, P2, yeah. P3. Is that but prologue? It, uh, maybe this is prologue because it does get back to yeah. one eventually. And That's so, what it is. And this prologue does look different. And so... You know what I suspect happened? This was added on? Yep. Yeah. Because if you start a script... Mm. And you number it. You then you lock the numbers. And yeah. Every oh my god! If you change a scene oh, number, god, no. the entire system falls apart. Yeah. Well, yes. now someone's like, I have an idea. I'm going to try and be Martin Scorsese. I have an idea. I have a great idea. We should do a prologue. So, all right, we have a prologue that's going to have a ton of little scenes. Normally, if you put a scene in front of one, mm-hmm. you don't call it scene zero. You call it a one, and then the next one would be b one, c one, d one. That just too many damn ones yeah. at that point. So I actually feel like using this method makes total sense. I've never seen it before, but I suspect that's what happens. I suspect that's the case because also these are formatted differently than the rest of the script because these have, instead of scene headers, it's right. cut to Osage Princess Contest. And so like, wow, is this a really strange screenplay format? But then once we get to page five, yeah. it's much more conventional. Yeah, it may be something, this looks a little bit like a first AD mm. went into maybe what was considered three scenes, because what happens is P1 is an interior, P3 is an exterior, P2 and all the other Ps are non-scene headers, typically. They're more cut to, cut to, cut to. But a first AD knows, I got to treat each one of these as a scene because they're in different places with Mm. different people. So I'm just going to go through and number these myself. Now, scrolling ahead, there are cases where things that we would normally do in exterior, exterior, scene header are just like big uppercase sections. So I'm looking at page... 13, where scene 12 is listed as Molly emerges from Beatty's office, Ernest goes to her. Right. And there are other indications that maybe this is the um, the combination of different people yeah. doing it. So, for instance, on page 10, scene 6, the scene header is underlined. Uh, scene 7, not. Yeah. So, you have Eric Roth, you know, great writer who has his druthers. You have Martin Scorsese mm-hmm. who has his way of doing things. And then I really do think yeah. there was a third person working here to help transcribe ideas. And so this is an example where format is not relevant at all. Because yeah. guess what? This thing's been nominated for 4 billion awards. So what I don't want uh, listeners to do is to overlearn lessons from this thing, which is like, oh, I can switch up my scene headers all the time cha- chaotically. No one set out to do There's this. There's no advantage to it. No. But on the other hand, <laughs> no one's going, sorry, I got to page three and one of the scene headers was underlined. So we're passing on <laughs> killers. Of, no, no, I don't think so. I don't think you are. I was very excited to finally see the script for Barbie, um, which is Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach. Uh, we've had them both on the show before. They are absolutely terrific. 
Um, I love the opening to Barbie and sort of how it's set up, like why Barbie matters and sort of what an iconic change she was on the landscape. So we see how they write up the 2001 sort of homage to this. Again, we hear as we see, and it's very much capturing the experience, like what it would feel like to see the movie. Like it's not afraid to show things that are not in evidence because they help us understand how things feel. And I will say again, the whole thing, the reason we harp on the whole we see, we hear is not because people use it and other people say don't use it and it's just annoying to us. There's value to it. Mm -hmm. This we go, we see, we see, finally we see. We float above the Arby's. I understand what's happening. I The point is the camera is a point of view. Mm -hmm. A lot of directing is figuring out where do you put the camera and a lot of figuring out where to put the camera is whose perspective is this from? Who matters here? Do I want to imply isolation? Do I want to apply etherealness? Do I want the audience to feel voyeuristic? Do I want it to be somebody's clocking of things? We Mm -hmm. is the indicator that it is us. Yeah, it's the audience getting to see things through the camera, through through where we are. And the camera is moving in a way that Mm -hmm. is for us. Like we're ghosts that are moving through and around being steered by an invisible hand to show us things. That's valuable. Yeah. Uh, Barbie takes her slide down to the pool because she can, exclamation point. Uh, Barbie's dreamhouse kitchen day. She eats a nothing breakfast, drinks a big glass of nothing. Barbie Margot stands at the top floor of her house, waves to her friends, and improbably sails through the air and lands in the driver's seat of her car. It's just giving a sense of what this is going to feel like and what the tone is. And, and conveying tone in a script is absolutely crucial. And it's, it's the relationship of the filmmaker to the audience and the writer to the reader. They have to mirror each other. And it's a very clever way of imparting the rules of mm-hmm. this world without explaining the rules of this world. I'm not a big fan of scenes that explain rules. Yeah. Right. I mean, sometimes you have to. Like in The Matrix, it was so nuts. Somebody had to say, here's a rule. If you die in the fake world, your body dies in the real world because the mind can't live without the body. We have to say that because otherwise... But it doesn't even really make sense, but it doesn't matter. They needed stakes and it works and I love the movie. But you had to say it. Here, once Margot Robbie steps out of the heels and reveals her feet, we're like, okay, I get it. Because there's so many different Mm -hmm. ways of saying, oh, a doll is going to be represented by a person. Well, what I learned from this is she is a person, mm-hmm. she is flesh and blood, but also she follows general rules of actual Barbiness, yeah. which is, I can sort of teleport if a kid teleports me, mm-hmm. and my feet are fixed, and I don't really eat or drink, and that's part of the fun. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I want to take a look at two scripts that are just really complicated setups and seeing how they're conveying a ton of information on the page. Across the Spider-Verse, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller and David Callahan. We take a look at these pages here. They are establishing in a sequel, basically characters we've already met before, but there's a whole bunch of stuff happening here. So um, this initial sequence is Gwen Stacy on the drums, establishing what's happened with Miles Morales since the time before this. Miles watching his uncle Aaron die. Miles' dad, Jeff, unwittingly pulling a gun on his own son. There's so much happening. This really complicated. And yet it's making clear like this drum sequence is going to get us through all that kind of backstory and getting us up to speed with where we're at in Gwen's world and Gwen's dimension of Earth-65. While already creating mystery, yeah, right? With the repetition of he's not the only one. And we understand there's more coming here, uh, especially when somebody says, you think you know the rest, you don't. I thought I knew the rest, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. That's a really good way of 
warning the audience to expect the unexpected. It's also a very clever way of saying, hey, we have to undo finality. Yeah. Sequels are hard because a good ending feels final mm-hmm. unless it's really meant as like chapter one of, you know, the continuing episodes. I mean, Dune yeah. sort of ends like that yeah. because we understand there's like more book to tell. Yeah. It doesn't have to conclude. But the the Spider-Man um, multiverse movies across the universe concludes. So now you have to unwind it without kind of making the audience feel like they got baited and switched. Yeah. And so what they're doing is they're saying, hey, empathize with her. She got dated and switched. Let's find out how and why. Yeah. On page two, there's a choice to, uh, uh, MJ has Gwen, Gwen, yo, Def Leppard. And the first Gwen is tiny, tiny font. Then it gets a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger. Sure. Do it all the time. Yeah. I do it all the time. Love it. Then we'll get to Oppenheimer. So we had Christopher Nolan on the show. He was delightful to talk through, uh, his process and his writing process on this. We talked a bit about he had to find ways to describe these impossible to visualize things of quantum mechanics. And so there are sequences in the script that really reflect a jumble of images that sort of get you to what that point is. I think we didn't get into too much on the episode was that he doesn't like to um, reveal anything that the audience wouldn't directly know. And if you look at the script, uh, they're very spare. So there's not a lot of description of settings of wardrobe, hair, costumes. There's not a lot of that. It's, it's very, very spare and efficient. Even places that we're going to come back to a lot, like these two interview rooms, we're not seeing a lot of the details here. Right. Uh, it works for this movie. Um, well, it works for him particularly mm-hmm. because he's in complete control of the process from yes. beginning to end. Now, what it means is that Christopher Nolan is going to have to have some very long meetings with his department. Oh, yes to explain what he sees and what he, mm-hmm. and there, and there are a lot, probably a lot of conversations with the actors, but that must be part of his process. Yes. Like there is value in saying, look, I actually, this information that I need you to know, I prefer to impart one-on-one individually with you guys. The other thing is it saves space, right? Yes. So this is a 195 page script. Yeah. Now, right off the bat, what I notice is between scene headers, there is not a, a, second, like, line. a yeah. second line, right? Yeah. So this is a, comp- like, you can feel him <laughs> trying to fit this into 200, because he is like, look, he knows this is going to ultimately be a very long movie, yeah. right? If I make a choice to fully describe things, it will be 500 pages. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he was sitting in your chair and he said, like, you know, listen, uh, he looks at a screenplay as a way to sort of get his thoughts on paper and, and understand, make it clear what it is he's trying to do, but it's also a sales document that he has to give it to somebody yes. and then see like, okay, I understand what you're trying to do here and I will give you the money to make this movie. Right. And if it had been a 250 page script versus a, you know, cut out the A and B pages and it's only like 180 pages, but it's still, <laughs> it's long. It's a Scott Frank size script and that's fine, mm-hmm. especially if, I mean, look, again, the movie is a long movie, yeah. but if it holds people's attention, that's great. Part of it is like, hey, you're going to be here for a while reading. I'm not going to bog you down in a billion. You just won't make it. Yeah. Right. So I'm going to save a lot of this. It's a very efficient way of doing it. Yeah. Um, which I think probably was necessary. That's something you probably don't realize yet is that instead of third person or second person plural, it's written first person. And so, so Oppenheimer is the right. I in this. And it's, a, it's strange when you first encounter it, but then you eventually like understand like, oh, I get why he's doing that because he's always the POV character in these things. Uh, in this, the scenes that he's in, it saves him from typing Oppenheimer yep. 5,000 times in the script. Very long name. It also 
adds this kind of Dr. Manhattan mm. style wistfulness. Like he's, because he's not narrating, he's no. living it, but yet you feel like he is watching his own life mm-hmm. and he is just describing what he does to us all in this slightly numb way. Um, I drop a beaker, it shatters. That's very Dr. Manhattan. Yeah, it is. Last one I want to talk through is Cord Jefferson's script for American fiction. These are great looking pages and they're very much, I think, what we are sort of talking about when we describe what looks great and classic and normal in a three-page challenge is that like the pages are inviting. They're very clean to read. We get right into the story too. It's like from that very initial scene, we're like, oh, this is going to be about a black professor confronting race and we know what the central theme and question of the movie is going to be. Yeah. And sometimes I see things, I'm like, ooh, do I want to steal that or mm-hmm. not? So stylistically, Cord does an interesting thing. He capitalizes not only names as he's introducing people, but of course, like we often do, capitalizes things. Yeah. And what he does in the capitalization of these things, typically they are for people, is he bolds that. Yeah. And I'm I'm kind of interested in that. Um, it, it makes it easier to find where a character first appears. Right. Um, it is interesting. Sometimes I look at stuff like that. Now, he also bolds and underlines his scene headers. I think I, I just bold mine. It depends on the script. I've done it both ways. Mm. There's something nice about sort of the bold and underline because it just makes it really clear, like, here's the next thing. Yes. It can look good on the page. He doesn't need to do it, but it's... But you're right. The, the pages lay out exactly as I would expect. I mean... It's just well-written. You could tell. You never flip to a page and I'm like, oh, Jesus, that's a lot of text for me to tackle. And some of these scripts, you know, do have just a lot of words on the page. And it's like, it's it's a lot. And in Cord's script, you never get to a page. It's like, oh, my God, I, I don't have the strength to get through that page. Right. Also, American fiction is a comedy. Mm-hmm. It's not a raucous physical comedy, yeah. but it is a comedy. So you want a certain lightness yeah. and speed and pace. One of the things I like is this first scene is... One and a quarter pages. Yeah, not long. It's not long at all. And it tells us so much mm-hmm. about who Monk is. And sort of what the mood is yes. in 2022, 2023, when this is happening. And it's funny. Yeah. It's really funny. Um, And, and it, it just cuts right to the heart of things. And it's just tight, you know, like it doesn't need to dwell. Yeah. Well, let's compare this to the first group we looked at, which was the holdovers. It needed to establish, this is what 1970s New England prep school kind of feels like. Right. Here, we don't need to establish what the campus is like. We don't need to see, like, you know. We just need to know he's in the situation that we know about. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, and you fe- you just get it right away. Um, and also, the subsequent scene where he's kind of called on the carpet by mm-hmm. his bosses and, and, and colleagues. Uh, again, funny. Yeah. And zippy. And while this is happening and Cord's teaching us, okay, we're actually in our world, right? Yeah. This is incredibly topical and mm-hmm. current. Also, this is who Monk is. And it's not like, oh, he's just a victim of circumstance. He does have a problem. He is creating his, his problems. He's kind of, what I really thought was interesting about this second scene, you can see it across page uh, two through four, is you don't necessarily root for him. Mm-hmm. You you're, you want to root for him at first. And you're like, hmm, I don't know if I try. Like, there's this great exchange where he says, you're under the impression that time spent with my family will take the edge off. I'm fine. You're not fine. I saw you crying in your car <laughs> last week, <laughs> which is really great. And sort of makes us wonder if maybe Monk is actually 
problematic. Mm -hmm. And he is, but not politically problematic, not philosophically problematic. He's he's emotionally constipated. Yeah. And it is interesting to see how that unfolds. We talk about how important it is to figure out where to come into a scene and when to exit a scene. Yes. And in, on page two here, we're coming into this conference room scene quite late into it, um, which is great, but we automatically catch up to us where we're at. So the first line is, well, it made some of your students uncomfortable, Monk. And so we don't, like the other 20 minutes that happened before this right. were not important. There's also a really smart choice um, sometimes you get to a point in a scene where you're like, uh-oh, someone just started trouble. And then you have to write the trouble. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens here, and Cord's very clever about this. So Monk is a professor. He's written a Flannery O'Connor title on the board that includes the N-word, and but spelled out. And mm -hmm. a white student has a real problem with that, even though Monk is black and she's sort of, so here's what she says. Well, I just find that word really offensive. And he says, with all due respect, Brittany, I wish I could talk like Jeffrey, with all due respect, Brittany, I got over it. I'm pretty sure you can too. And she says, well, I don't see why. Monk, who has been affable up until now, casts an icy stare at Brittany. Now, what Cord chooses to do is then cut to her storming out mm -hmm. and crying and him shouting, now, does anyone else have thoughts in the reading? We know something went down in mm -hmm. there. It's better that we didn't hear it. If we heard it, we might actually really start mm. to not like Monk more than we don't want to not like him. Yeah. We might get confused about whose side we're on. But right now, what's important is in our minds, we go, okay, this guy's got a problem. <laughs> He's a little hard on the students, but also Brittany is kind of ridiculous. Yeah. It worked. It was a great elision. Yeah. And also establishes our trust in the storytelling. It's like, you know, okay, this person knows what they're doing. They're going to lead us through a story. It's all going to, we're in good hands. So hopefully these are, you know, useful lessons for people. Like you don't need to ape any one person's style. You can see there actually is a range of like really good scripts out there to read. It's just important to read them and sort of, you know, sort of process them and sort of see what actually fits for your own personal style. Completely. And of note is probably that all these individual styles are expressions of something internal going on in each one of these writers' brains mm -hmm. that is unique, specific to them. That's why some people want to do it this way and yeah. some people want to do it that way. It's just how it fits with the way their mind works. Absolutely. Uh, let's tackle maybe two listener questions. Great. We have a question from Tim L who asks, when do you write? Do you have a set routine or just when the mood hits you? Craig, you're in the middle of a lot of writing right now. So yes. what is your writing routine these days? Well, these days I'm being very productive because mm -hmm. we're on a little holiday hiatus. So I'm back here in LA and I don't have 500 meetings every uh, day to go yeah. to for prep. So suddenly, right, I'm like, wee, um, I'm getting a lot done. We're pulling into the station with just about everything for the whole season being done writing wise. But typically my process is to wait until I know what the scene is mm -hmm. and what I'm supposed to write and what the beginning and the end is and what the turns are, I really wait until I, I know what it is. And then I wait until I'm so ashamed that yeah, I, yeah. I have to write. So I, I am not a set time of day person. It's incredibly unlikely that I will wake up and just start writing. That's not how it works for me. So my writing machine, right now I'm mostly just doing the script notes, book edits, which are, it's different writing than usual, but it's still like, you know, it's getting the work done and sort of getting that, through that. I tend to have like two or three writing sessions in a day. And so if I can write wow. for an hour, I'll write for an hour, go away, I'll come back, write for an hour, go away. And if I'm doing like the early finished books was the most routine I actually really had to establish because if I didn't hit a thousand words a day, those books would you never get there. Yeah. 
And so that's where I sort of mostly learned, okay, this is how I just get the work done. When it's stuff on my own for whatever, as you know, there'll be moments where I know how to do this thing now and I will, I will stop everything and sort of get that written down. In my 20s, that was a lot more possible to sort of stay up all night and just, you know, mm. follow the inspiration. I can't do that now. It's just, it doesn't work for the family, but also doesn't work for me. Like I just, I, I'm ruined for a couple of days if I don't get a good night's sleep. Oh, yeah. No, I, I need to sleep. And if I don't, I'm a mess. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm, a, we're all a bit of delicate flowers. I'm people that just sort of go, it's 9 a.m. And then it's 4.30. Kating. I'm yeah. done. Suspicious. <laughs> Deeply suspicious. But we both have friends who can do that. And God yeah, bless them. It's terrifying. Yeah. But I salute them. Uh, second question. Single card writes, I'm a UK writer with a question about shared writing credits. I'm the third and, fingers crossed, final writer on a film that is due to shoot in spring. The initial agreement was for me to share a written by card with the other two writers, but the work I've done on the script since that agreement is substantial enough that the producer has agreed to renegotiate on that point. He has offered a separate written by card for me, which would follow a shared written by card for the other two. In this instance, is it preferable to go first or second? And is there anything else I could be asking for regarding the credits to make it clearer that I am the writer who made by far the biggest contribution to the script? This would be my first major credit, and I'm eager for this to be as reflective as possible of the work I have done on the script. Well, you, single card, you are definitely a UK writer. Mm, this is not, not something not that happens here. Yeah, so the WGA litigates uh, all credits and comes up with a single writing credit that may include multiple names, but it would always be on one card. So in this case, it would be written by you and A-N-D, so-and-so, ampersand, so-and-so, if they were a team, or three A-N-Ds. That, that is the maximum credits allowed for screenplay would be three names. And there would never be two different cards. Also, it wouldn't be up to the producer. Yeah. So this is a very foreign concept to us. Yeah. So here, the theories we can apply here from our experience is that, in general, the writer whose name is listed first is considered the person who contributed the most. And so we're going through an arbitration, and we have to determine the order of, like, is it writer C, then writer B, then writer A? Whatever the first name that appears is in the belief of the arbiters, the person who contributed the most to the finished screenplay. Correct. Nobody in the world notices or cares. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really matter. I mean, I suppose if you were concerned about the ordering and where the prestige is, typically the closer you get to the final credit, the more prestigious it is. Mm -hmm. So the Writers Guild, for instance, negotiated uh, mm -hmm. many years ago to get into the second to last position. Yes. It used to be writers, then producers, then directors. Now it's producers, writers, directors. So we are the second to last. Director is always the final credit. But I got to tell you, single card, I'm not judging you here, but it is clear that this is your first major credit because you're dwelling on all this. Yeah. Don't. No. It doesn't matter. Here's the way it works. Nobody cares what the order is. Nobody cares that it's on a separate card. This will get hashed into an IMDB thing. That's what people will see. And also, unless there is some sort of awards or things like that in and of itself, it's only going to matter to the business. Most people aren't really paying attention. The business pays attention. And you can certainly get more opportunities. But the ordering, separation of cards, you're focusing on the wrong thing right now. Yeah. Now, Craig, on the podcast, we've established why the U.S. is an exception, that we are actually a true labor union for the Writers Guild of America. Yes. But I guess what I'm confused about is whether any other international groups have 
come together to figure out writing credits for themselves. Because it, there's nothing that would stop a voluntary organization to sort of come together to do this. The way that the PGA credit is, Producers Guild is not an actual union, right. but they actually come together to determine the PGA producing credits on things. Yes, but they only are able to do so because the companies allow them to. Mm-hmm. The companies basically said, or and the academies yeah. basically said, you know what, we're going to, we're going to outsource this dispute to you guys. Yeah. We are allowing you to decide. I'm not aware of any other organization around the world that adjudicates credits in a way that is legally binding per a contract mm. with the companies. So there are draught morale and first writer yeah. rights and things like that that exist as a function of law. I don't know if anybody else does it like us. Our system is infuriating, mm. but preferable yeah. to going hat in hand to a producer because in this case, single card, I'm just going to take her or him at, yeah. his, at their word that they did do the vast majority yeah. of the work. But let's say they didn't because writers say that all the time. Yeah. We know as arbiters, we read those statements and someone's like, I clearly did everything. And then I read the scripts and I'm like, you didn't do anything. Yeah. So sometimes we get delusional about our contributions. So if you're buddies with the producer if you're, if that's your pal, does that mean you're more likely to get credit? Somebody else gets screwed over. It's not good. Not good at all. No. If you are a listener who actually does have information about how other international, you know, bodies may be determining credits, I'm just curious what what's out there. Yeah, it would be good to know, even if it's an arrangement like the kind the PGA has, where it's just sort of a a studio, or maybe like the BBC goes, yeah, we'll sort of let you guys figure it yeah, out. Yeah, I could, I could totally imagine something like BBC might have its own credit determination process. It may very well, as it is a government. Yeah. And obviously our animate our animated projects that are not WG covered, they do have their own process, which is not always great. Though their own process is the producers decide. Yeah. It's time for our one cool things. Yay. Craig, what is your one cool thing? So my one cool thing, it's a I guess it's a little late because this is coming out in the new year, yeah. right? So it would have been good for you guys to know about this during the holiday season. But you know what the holiday season keeps going. It's a fun game that you can play with Kids, families, large groups of parties, you know, even eight, nine people. And it's a website called Gartic Phone, G-A-R-T-I-C phone.com. And it's just a twist on the good old game of telephone. The idea is instead of somebody saying, whispering something into someone's ear and then they pass it along, you draw a picture, Mm -hmm. everybody draws a picture, and then the game figures out, okay, I'm going to send each one of you one of the other person's Mm. pictures and you are going to write a caption that you think is what this picture meant to say. Yes. Then I'm going to send that caption to another person who's going to draw what they think that caption should be. And it keeps going. Yes. And then at the end, it shows you the evolution of these things and it's hysterical and it's fun and it's the kind of thing that is so absurd and silly and yet a delight. Yeah. And it's totally free. You can do it on your phones iPads, laptops, uh, fun for all ages, Gartic phone. Gartic phone. So the physical version of that that I've played is called Telestrations. And so there's these little whiteboard notebooks that uh, it's the same idea where like on one page, you get a card with a, a prompt, you have to draw that thing and you pass it to the next person. Around. Exactly. So always a good game to play. Uh, mine is also a game. Uh, it is Dungeon of the Mad Mage. Uh, <laughs> so Craig Mason for the last three years, coming on four years, yeah. Gotcha. has been hosting a uh, session, often weekly, uh, playing yeah. D&D, yeah. of Dungeon of the Mad Mage, which is a an established campaign setting world. So it's, it takes place underneath Waterdeep yep. and Halster's Tomb of Madness, Domain, Domain of Madness, yeah. 
We started on April 7th, 2020. I looked back through. Wow. So I have an Apple note that sort of just goes through like everything session by session, like what happened in the so session. So we literally started like, it's the pandemic, let's do this. Yes. And so Craig, it's, it's so, I, I want to thank you because you okay. are the person who made this all possible. Pandemic happens. We're like, oh crap, are we going to still be able to play something? And Craig figures out Roll20, um, which is the system which we all are looking at the same map. We're all on Zoom and we started playing this game. It was an absolute lifesaver. That group stayed together. We added a few members yep. over the while. And uh, I can't believe we are finally finishing it. Yes. Uh, by the time this episode comes out, we will have finished the uh, Dungeon of the Mad Mage. The final battle is upon you. What are we, 100 and some odd sessions? 113 sessions. 113 sessions. That's a whole lot of DMing. That <laughs> yeah, is. And uh, I'm I'm looking forward to it. And my hope is, you know, that we, we keep going, that we yeah. find another, you know, game. I I would love to play. <laughs> um, as much as I enjoy DMing, it would be nice to to play as well. We've always done this podcast for 625 episodes. So we have a sense of like, you know, doing things every week for a very long period of time sure. is, is natural to us. Um, but did you have any anticipation that it was going to take this long to get through this? No, because I played it mm-hmm. um, as part of a, a group and that group was just faster. Yeah. And, and I think every group is different. You guys were way more deliberate and liked to look everywhere. Like that group would be like, oh, we found the the way down. Let's just go. We don't care. Yeah. Next. Yeah. <laughs> and you guys love, which is great for yeah. me as a DM, you love looking in every corner. Yes. There were very few things where I thought, oh, they missed this cool part. Like you guys kind of did everything, All right. which was great. And I mean, obviously I sort of homebrewed a bunch mm-hmm. of it. And there were some things that I knew were boring that I, you know, got rid of or made exciting. Yeah. But by and large, it's, it, it was an, an incredible dungeon crawl. You guys milked it for all it was worth. And there's this other thing that, you know, middle-aged men are sort of notorious for not having friends. Yeah. And then they, you know, and then they die. And having friends yeah, was nice. is important. And having this kind of ongoing group is important. And it is a stellar group. I mean, we have some pretty famous people in it. There's some heavy hitters in there, yeah. Everybody is distinguished in one way or another. Like, And while we were doing it, became more distinguished. Kevin yeah. Walsh became a five-time Jeopardy champion <laughs> while we were doing this. Like, there's all these things that are just happening. So it's been great, and I'm looking forward to the final fight. Yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge the years of work and also the fact that, like, you know, obviously you're created in our show running this massively expensive uh, TV project. But for the eight of us uh, who sort of get, you know, your world building uh, week after week, just I want to oh, thank you again. Thank you. It was, it, was, it was a joy and it was a great thing to do. You know, like I, there were times where I was running sessions out of my trailer yes. while we were shooting, you know, like at night. So it was much fun for me. And I'm glad it was, I mean, the, you know, advice for DMs out there, make the game fun for your players. Crucial. Crucial. They got, you know, you can't baby them. They got to be a little scared. Mm-hmm. It's okay that they get frustrated, but ultimately they got to, if they don't want to come back, you must be doing something wrong. Yeah. I think I've told you this before, but um, our neighbors moved in during the pandemic. And so we only met them a year after they moved in. And they asked, why is that one light on in the second story of your <laughs> guest house only on Thursdays, but till midnight? And it's like, oh, it's because I'm playing D&D. Because I'm awesome. Because I'm awesome. That's why. That is the reason. Yes. That is our show for this week. Mm. Scriptness is produced by Drew Marquardt. You know it. And edited by Matthew Chalelli. Indeed. Our outro this week is by Zach Lowe. If you have an outro, you can send us a link to ask at johnaugs.com. That's also the place where you can send questions. You can find the show notes for this episode and all episodes at johnaugs.com. 
You'll also find transcripts and sign up for our weekly-ish newsletter called Interesting, which has lots of links to things about writing. We have t-shirts and hoodies. They're great. You'll find them at Cotton Bureau. You can sign up to become a premium member at scriptnotes.net, where you get all those back episodes and bonus segments like the one we're about to record on lab-grown meat. <laughs> lab-grown meat. What a great name for a band. I would be shocked if it's not already. Yeah, yeah it's got to be. It's got to be there. Got to be there. Thanks, Greg. Thank you, John. My name, my name, my name is John August. My name is Craig Mason. Script Notes. What, what?